so I had a, uh, I had a really funny uh, message sent to me this week by a, uh, a fellow staff member, and I thought this was too good uh, not to share with the church. So uh, some of you might be familiar with Tom Rayner. He uh, is kind of a church leadership guru. He's an author. Um, he also is the founder of churchanswers.com. It's an online community for church leaders and lay people. And so he, he went and he asked uh, churchgoers and pastors alike, uh, a good group of them, he asked this, this question, what are some of the best excuses that you've heard uh, for people skipping church on Sunday morning? And uh, these are some of the answers that he received uh, from these people. It's great. Um, excuse number one, I couldn't get the lid off the peanut butter. <laughs> and these are, these, are, these are real responses from people. Um, another response, the church is too close to drive and too far to walk. <laughs> I hope this one isn't the case at our church, but this one says, both of my girlfriends attend the same church. <laughs> another common response, uh, the pastor stays in the Bible too much. I would agree. Uh, My wife cooked bacon for breakfast, and our entire family smelt like bacon, so we chose not to go. (laughs) Uh, The worship leader pulls his or her pants up too often, and it's just distracting. (laughs) Uh, The pastor is too attractive, and when I see him preaching, I have impure thoughts, and I'm distracted as well. (laughs) I don't think that's the case here. I, I I definitely married up in my situation. Um, the last one, uh, someone called me brother instead of using my real name, something that turns people off a little bit. So maybe you relate to some of those. I just thought that was pretty funny, something good to share this morning. But, uh, I guess in transition, I would say, I'm excited that you're here today. I'm excited that you've chosen to make worship a priority this morning and to gather with God's people. Um, it's going to be a good day. So, uh, we're in week three of a message series called Stand Firm. And for four weeks, I'm really just challenging and encouraging our church family uh, to stand firm on the promises of God, to build our lives on the promises of God. So Matthew chapter 14 is a chapter in the Bible that contains a wonderful promise for God's people. And I see some of you getting your Bibles out. You can go ahead and do that if you'd like. We're going to camp in Matthew 14 for most of the day today. Uh, you can just find your spot and then we'll, we'll come back to it. But Matthew 14 begins by introducing us to an individual whose family we already know a little bit about. And the reason we know about them is because we've already uh, talked a little bit about their family in this series. So remember back to week one, when the Apostle Paul came face-to-face with a man by the name of Herod Agrippa II. This was in Acts 25 and 26. Agrippa II was the last in a long line of Herods. And this, this is a family who was known for persecuting Christians, widely known for this. So Matthew 14, where we're going to be today, introduces us to Agrippa II's grandfather. His name is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is widely known as being the ruler over Galilee during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's also the guy who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. So he had originally arrested and imprisoned uh, John the Baptist as a favor to his wife, a lady by the name of Herodias. Now this family 
is a little messed up because Herodias, his current wife, was also the former wife of his brother, Philip. It gets kind of complicated in this family. (laughs) So Herod wanted John the Baptist dead. He wanted him executed, but he knew if he gave the order that there would be a, a large group of people who would rise up in protest to what happened. And he didn't want his name to be tainted in that way. So they threw a birthday party for Herod. And we don't know how old he was, but we're told that at this party, uh, God's word tells us that Herodias's daughter, we believe from another marriage, um, performed a dance that pleased Herod. And because of this, he promised to give her anything she wanted. So influenced by her mom, Herodias, um, the daughter asked Herod to bring her the head of John the Baptist on a tray. That was her request. He said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. So Herod, he, he immediately regrets telling her that she can have whatever she wants. Remember, he's afraid that executing John would mean that a, a large group of people would rise up in protest. He was afraid of a riot. But because he made this promise to her and because it was in front of a large group of people, he had to give the order. So we're told that John was beheaded in prison and his head was delivered to Herodias' daughter on a tray. Now word about John's death spread and it quickly reached his disciples so that they came, some of his closest friends and, and, and followers, and they asked for John's body so that they could bury him. And as soon as they did that, they went and they told Jesus what had happened. And as soon as Jesus heard the news, the Bible tells us that he left in a boat to a remote area so that he could try to be alone. I believe that that Jesus is grieving. Remember, John is his cousin. So why is it so important that we become familiar with this story before we look at the main text that we're going to look at today, and specifically the promise for this message? Well, you know, I think it's easy for many people to assume that when Jesus was doing ministry here on earth, that the storms of life would have just stopped for him. You know, if we didn't take time to read the full story or read the context that surrounds the promise, you might think, you know, if Jesus really did create everything, as the Bible says, couldn't this have just been a storm-free time in his life? I mean, surely Jesus would have been spared the discomfort from having to go through the storms of life, the, the trials, suffering, and problems that many of us face. I would say we all face. But this wasn't the case. You know, for many, I think there's even an unspoken expectation in the Christian heart that believes that now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, shouldn't I get a pass from having to go through the storms of life? Shouldn't I get a pass from having to go through difficult seasons? You know, there are many false teachers in our day to day that say things like uh, following Jesus leads to a storm free life, a life without trials, a life without struggles and problems. That's a message that's out there. I believe if a person begins their Christian walk with this belief and with this expectation heading into that new life in Christ, it's not long before they get a dose of reality. In fact, I would say that to truly follow Jesus is to understand that this life will have storms. That's what Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. 
You know, friends, in this life, we're going to have trials. We're going to have sorrows and heartache and, and problems. And that's why I believe God has given us his promises. God has given us his great and precious promises, as Second Peter 1 talks about, to build our lives on. Promises that help us get through the storms of life. So when we go back to Matthew 14, Jesus had received this news. We read that he gets in a boat and he's headed somewhere remote so that he can be alone. And we read that a large crowd of people heard where he was headed. And it says they came from multiple towns from around the area. They started following Jesus on foot. You know, over the years, when someone is sick, when someone is going through a difficult season, maybe a, a storm of life, I've heard the comment, you know, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to do when someone is, is hurting. I think this is a great example of what not to do. <laughs> this group of people, they heard where Jesus was headed. They decided to follow him on foot. And they're following him around everywhere. And they're just asking for things. Right? That's what not to do. When someone is going through one of life's storms, don't follow him around just, just asking for things. That's not what we do. But we read here, and this is amazing. The Bible tells us that Jesus had compassion on them anyway. Hurting, trying to, to be alone. He had compassion on them anyway. It says, it, the Bible says he even prayed for the ones who were sick and they were healed. So when it was getting close to the end of the day, uh, we read that Jesus' disciples, they had just had enough. This is like, you know, when you have a long day at work or you've been busy all day and you just, you're just ready for some you time. All right. You don't want to be around anyone or anything else. You're just ready for some rest. All right, so Jesus' disciples, they'd had enough, and they asked Jesus, they said, could you just send the crowds away so that everybody could eat? We can grab some grub, just send them away, and they can find some food. And Jesus responds, he says, you know, that's not necessary. In fact, I want you to think about a way to, to feed them. I just think this, this story is incredible. So here in the middle of Matthew 14, why Jesus is grieving and hurting because of the loss of his cousin John, we read this amazing story of the feeding of the 5,000. And we know that that's just 5,000 men. That doesn't include the women and children who were there that day. So with only five loaves of bread and, and two fish, Jesus blessed the meal. He broke the bread into pieces. And he gave the bread and the, and the fish to the disciples to be dispersed amongst the people. And after everyone had had as much as their bellies could handle, they, they weren't hangry anymore. They were no longer hungry and angry. They were full. We read there were 12 baskets of food left over. And then Jesus told his disciples, he said, I want you to get back in the boat. I want you to begin what should have been a short journey, ended up being a long journey, to cross the lake to the other side. And this is where we read about today's promise. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 14, uh, verses 22 through 24, and you can also pull out your smartphone or your tablet, and we'll have the scripture up on the screen. So keeping in mind all of the context we just talked about, this is what we read. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. And night fell while he was there alone. And meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had arisen, and they were fighting heavy waves. So, church, this, this happens to be a real physical storm that the disciples 
are in. But given the context of Matthew 14, I believe there are some great truths that we can learn about facing the storms of life, the trials, the the sorrows, and the problems that we all face. So if you're taking notes, the first truth that we're going to talk about today is this. And I think this is an important one. Sometimes we create our own storms. Sometimes we create our own storms. So I'm from Oklahoma. Many of you know that. And we, we get a lot of crazy thunderstorms back home. They, they don't call it Tornado Alley for nothing. And we actually have storm chasers who purposefully rush into the midst of the storm so that they can collect data that in turn helps with all of the advanced warning systems that we have all over the country. It's, it's pretty amazing. But I thought I'd give you a few interesting facts about uh, Oklahoma storms this morning. Uh, one interesting fact is this, that Oklahoma has an average of 52 tornadoes per year. And in 2019, they had 83. That's pretty wild. Another uh, neat fact, that the largest tornado on record anywhere in the world ever touched down on May 31st, 2013, and this was in El Reno, Oklahoma. This tornado was 2.6 miles wide. I've got a photo for you up here to check out. So you can see I'm only about a mile from the tornado when I took this picture, but no, I didn't do that. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Another interesting fact is that the strongest natural wind speeds ever recorded on planet Earth was from a tornado that touched down in Oklahoma on May 3rd, 1999. I actually remember sitting on my roof and watching this tornado from a distance uh, with my dad. Um, so this tornado was, uh, had wind speeds of 318 miles an hour. Speeds like that can send a plastic straw through a wooden telephone pole. Just... Think about that for a second. So I've got a photo here. So this is a neighborhood that was hit by the May 3rd tornado. Now keep in mind, this tornado tracked for miles and miles. And this wasn't as wide as the other tornado. um, But you can see this is a neighborhood. And here in the middle, I mean, it's just, it's complete destruction. You can see the green on each side. I remember my uncle lived in a neighborhood in Moore, Oklahoma when this happened. And just walking through his neighborhood, it it was just bare earth. It, it, it was incredible. You'd never seen anything like it. You'd think it was out of a movie. So back to the storm chasers for just a second. You know, even if it's for a good cause, and it definitely is, these, these men and women who rush into the midst of these storms, you know, they make the decision to do that. In, in a lot of ways, you could say that they... They create their own storms. You know, on record, there have been 13 storm chasers who have lost their lives in Oklahoma. And when this happens, I mean, it's, it's obviously very sad, but it affects the entire state. People rally around uh, their storm chasers in Oklahoma. And again, I know these are literal storms that we're talking about. And the disciples were in a literal storm in Matthew 14. But there are some important lessons to be learned. I think one being that sometimes we create our own storms. You know, church, I believe that when we decide to harbor unforgiveness in our lives towards another person, we're creating our own storm. When we give in to temptation, we're creating our own storm. When we're lazy at work, when we're lazy in our marriages or lazy in our parenting, we're creating our own storms. 
When we decide to run from conflict instead of trying to resolve it, we're creating our own storm. I would say when we hang out with the wrong crowd for too long, we're, we're creating our own storm. I've heard it said, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, all of these storms can have negative and lasting effects in our lives. I think about that neighborhood. The storm came through and there's just, there's nothing left. I would say if you're currently in the midst of one of life's storms, it's important to take a step back and figure out, is this a storm of my own creation? Is this a storm of my own making? You know, I think we we go through life's storms. It's easy to place the blame on others. It's easy to blame God. I know a lot of people who won't step foot inside of a church building because they're angry at God for something that happened in their life. I've also found that many of life's storms could have been avoided if we would have simply followed God's leading in our lives and not our own. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. So how do we seek the will of God? How do we know which path to take? Well, Psalm 119, verse 105, this is just one verse that I think answers this. It says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet, a light for my path. Friends, if you want to avoid creating your own storms in life, stay rooted in the word of God. Stay rooted in the word of God. When we trust God with our lives, when we seek his will in all that we do, he promises to show us which path to take. But say you're currently in one of these self-created storms. And you're able to stand back and say, okay, I recognize this is a storm of my own doing. My own choices led to this. What, What are the next steps? Well, thankfully, we have an amazing God. A God who wants to forgive and to help his people get back on the right track. God desires to forgive you, to fill you with his wisdom and not not the world's wisdom. And again, to help you back on the right track. This doesn't mean that the consequences of our bad choices will, will go away. I think we all understand that. But it does mean that God will help carry you through the storm. You know, when talking about the storms of life, I think it's important to understand that sometimes we create our own storms. And far too often, we try to place the blame on others instead of owning it ourselves. The second truth that I want to talk about this morning is the opposite of the first truth. And that is this, that storms often come to the obedient. Storms often come to the obedient. So you look at the disciples in Matthew chapter 14. Did they create their own storm? The answer is no. They didn't create their own storm. Hear this, church. They were in the middle of the storm because Jesus told them to be there. They were in the middle of the storm because Jesus told them to be there. Verse 2 tells us Jesus insisted that his disciples go back into the boat. It sounds like they didn't really have much of a choice there. See, this wasn't Jonah trying to escape God. This wasn't Judas trying to fool everybody by stealing and keeping extra money to himself. These were disciples being obedient to Jesus. And that obedience 
found itself in the midst of a storm. At church, the storms of life often come to the obedient. You know, I think about our missionaries who have moved overseas to, to a country that God has called them to, only to arrive and face physical persecution. I think about Christian business owners who operate their business by God's design. You know, they serve their employees well. They care for their customers in the right way. They steward their finances in a biblical way, only to be outsold by dishonest competitors. That happens a lot. You know, I think about the family this morning who has raised their kids in church. They've raised their kids to know the Lord. And now that their kids are adults, they reject the faith. In Oklahoma, we have storm chasers who purposefully drive directly into the storm. You could say they create their own storm, but we also have communities of families who've chosen to take shelter when a, when a storm is on its way. There's, there's kind of a famous newscaster in Oklahoma. His name's David Payne. He's kind of a celebrity in Oklahoma because of the weather that we get. And, and you know when David Payne gets on there and he'll wear a certain color suit, and you know like when he's wearing this color suit, there's a storm coming. And he tells the people, if you're not underground... You're not going to survive. We've heard that a lot of times. A storm's on its way, and he, t- he tells the people to get underground. So you, you have these storm chasers who drive directly in the storm, and then you have communities of families who chose to take shelter only, only to come out and realize they've lost everything. They've lost everything in the storm. You see, in the same way, these disciples, they never asked for the storm to come. They were just being obedient to what Jesus told them to do. And their story reminds us today that storms often come to the obedient. And sometimes they come in a really big way. You you look at Matthew 14, verse 24. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. For a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. This was... This was a strong wind. These were heavy waves. This particular story is also recorded for us in John chapter 6. Excuse me. And in John 6, we get a little bit more detail. We learn that after rowing for hours, a trip that should have only taken a little more than an hour and a half, and after being four to five miles into the trip, the storm hit the disciples. And because of where it sits geographically, uh, storms can get really intense on the Sea of of Galilee. And that's true to this day. But to the disciples' credit, you know, they didn't turn around. They didn't give up. They didn't quit when things got tough. Instead, they chose to remain obedient, even in the storm. They chose to press on. But as someone who's reading this a few thousand years later, when you read the story, it's easy to see that They were fighting a losing battle if they were to fight it on their own. There's no way that they were going to make it to shore on their own. We read sometime early on the next day, uh, most scholars believe sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they were too far from the shore to make it in. They, They had fought the waves using their own strength for too long. And they were just too small to conquer these waves. How many of you felt like that before? Maybe it's in your marriage, at work, just in, an, in one of life's storms that you're dealing with. You've just been fighting it on your own for too long. 
I'm here to tell you, you're not going to make it to shore if you fight it by yourself. The storm is too big. If we were to climb in the boat with them, I'm positive we would have seen fear on their faces. I'm positive that we would have heard doubt in their voices and and maybe even heard a question that we've all asked at some point in our lives. And that is, where is God in the midst of the storm? Where is, where is Jesus in the midst of my storm? This is an, a really important question. And the answer to this question is made clear in God's word. And I have a feeling it might surprise you a little bit. The third point that we're going to talk about answers this question. And that is this, that Jesus is praying in the midst of the storm. Jesus is praying in the midst of the storm. Matthew 14, verse 23, we read, After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to do what? What's the word? To pray. Night fell while he was there alone. So while the disciples are are struggling in the storm, Jesus is praying. From the time Jesus sent them out on the water until probably around 3 a.m. in the morning, there's no indication that he did anything else. He didn't stop for a bite to eat. He didn't stop to make new friends on the way. He didn't heal the sick. He, he prayed. One author points out that after Jesus had served all day, he prayed all night. And because of where Jesus was at geographically, it's important to understand this. He would have been in the storm as well. He would have felt the force of the wind on his face. He would have been hit by the rain. You know, some people try to make the case that, well, the storm came first, so then Jesus resorted to prayer. This is how many people view prayer, as a last resort, as something that lacks power. I would argue that prayer was always Jesus' first line of defense. I would argue that it should be ours as well. He prayed purposefully. And powerfully interceding for his disciples because that's what he's doing right now as we speak. Romans 8 34, this is an amazing verse. It says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's what Jesus is doing right now. You know, the Greek word for our English word, intercede, it's a verb. It's an action word. It means making specific requests or petitions before someone else. We actually see this same word show up in Acts chapter 25 when the apostle Paul was on trial for the hope that he had in the promises of God. Remember, that was in week one of our our series In Acts 25, a guy by the name of Festus, he reminds Herod Agrippa II that the entire Jewish community had petitioned or had interceded to have Paul put to death. Biblically speaking, this is what intercessors do. They bring passionate and specific requests before God. So an important promise from Matthew chapter 14 that I I believe all believers can build their lives on. Our promise for today's message is this. That Jesus 
right now at this very moment in the midst of your storm is interceding for you. Let me say that again, that Jesus right now at this very moment in the midst of your storm is interceding for you. God's word reminds us that Jesus is continually speaking and praying on the behalf of his people. He's calling out to our heavenly father and reminding us that we don't need to fight the storms of life alone. Really, what we're asked to do is to believe the promise and to take refuge in Jesus, to find refuge in Christ. You know, there are a number of stories throughout God's word that remind us about today's promise. Acts chapter 7 is one. If, if you're doing your, your Bible reading plan through Acts, uh, you would have read this. We read, when Stephen was being stoned for his faith, he was, he was the first Christian martyr. Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for him. It's an amazing picture of faith, and it's an amazing picture of God's faithfulness. In Luke chapter 22, knowing that Peter and the rest of the disciples were going to face incredible trials, sorrows, and problems, the storms of life, Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed that his, his faith would not fail and that God would give Peter the strength to in turn strengthen others who were going through difficult seasons. So Jesus prayed for Peter. He was interceding for Stephen. I believe with all my heart that he promises to pray and to intercede for you as well. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus lives forever to intercede with God on your behalf. Church, we can stand firm on this promise. I believe this is a promise that we can build our lives on. Amen? I believe that. So a common question that many people have is this. You know, if Jesus is praying for me, if Jesus is interceding for me, why, why do the storms of life happen? I think that might be a more, a more frequently asked question than where is God in the midst of my storm? This is an important question, and I, I want to share with you, this is a question that we're going to answer in detail in, in a further message, in a later message. But for now, I want to encourage you to do something today. I want to encourage you to, to go home and read Romans chapter 5. Just this one chapter in the Bible, Romans 5. Romans 5 shows us that there is always purpose in our pain. That there is always a purpose when we're going through the storms of life. When it seems like there's no hope, there's hope. When it seems like it's all for nothing, that's a lie. There's always purpose in our pain. There's a reason that God allows the storms in our lives. There's a reason that Jesus allowed the disciples to go out on the boat. And if the storm is not one of your own making, again, sometimes it is. But if the storm has come because you've been obedient in your faith, I would say that there's a reason that you're in that storm right now. There's a reason that you've come out of that storm, or there's a reason that there, there's a storm on its way. 
Today, I want to encourage you to trust God, to lean on his word, and to build your life on his promises. And today's promise that Jesus, right now at this very moment, think about that. As we, as we sit here together at this very moment in the midst of your storm, he is interceding for you. We serve a good God, amen.